Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be fulfilled. Sorry, they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So ends this reading. Let's uh, come before God in prayer. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for this great passage from scripture. We pray that uh, you would give us attentive and serious minds as we uh, grapple with uh, what Jesus says and consider its implications for our lives. Uh, as we pray also for the children in Kids Church, that um, they would be uh, understanding the, the foundations of the, the, uh, the gospel and growing on that good foundation. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Christian life is a very good life to live. Uh, it's a great life to live. Uh, because when you're living the Christian life, you're living the way that God created you to live. You're following the maker's instructions. And in fact, uh, non-Christians are sometimes attracted to, to God because they've met a Christian person or number of Christian people and they've noticed, they've observed how their lives are qualitatively uh, different and better uh, than the lives uh, of others. Uh, as a teenager for myself, it was uh, due to getting to know some godly Christians that uh, I was attracted to God and it started me thinking more about eternal matters, thinking about the Lord and ultimately becoming uh, their brother in Christ. But godly character can have that opposite, the opposite effect as well. Uh, godly character can repel people, uh, which can make things slightly uncomfortable for us who are Christians, um, socially uncomfortable. Uh, we experience a clash of values because the world uh, says that uh, certain things are worth living for, uh, which are different to the things which God says are worth living for. There's a clash uh, of values. 
And although we are people who ought to desire to live at peace uh, with all, uh, all people, these differences can put us at odds uh, with our um, society, uh, sometimes even with our families and with other people. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the um, best known and most loved portions of Scripture. And as I mentioned uh, last week, we're going to spend the next couple of months or so working through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's an attractive piece of uh, Scripture. It's attractive, though, in the same way uh, that uh, insects are attracted to a flame because uh, the closer you get to it, it, it starts to burn you. Because uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as we'll see, uh, Jesus strips away uh, so many, much of that which we put our confidence in. Uh, he strips away our um, self-righteousness and exposes the corruption of our hearts, exposes the value system uh, within which we uh, live and operate. But as Jesus commences the sermon, and if you'd like to have your Bibles open at Matthew 5, what he does is he, he takes the value system of this world and he turns it upside down. He flips it on its head. And that's challenging for us. It's both challenging and it's also comforting. Now, we call this uh, section of the Sermon on the Mount the Beatitudes. I wonder why we call it the Beatitudes. I used to wonder if it was because it's saying, uh, this is the, the kind of person that you need to be is the person who has these kind of attitudes. Is that how you've understood the Beatitudes? It actually makes sense, doesn't it? And, it's, and it's, that's actually right in terms of what it's saying, but no, that's not actually where the word Beatitude comes from. Uh, it comes from a Latin word, beatus. Uh, I don't know anything about Latin, but I read this somewhere. There comes a, a Latin word, beatus, which means blessed. And now we're starting to make sense, aren't we? Because in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through to 12, Jesus uses the word blessed nine times, where he speaks of uh, people in different ways as being blessed. So what does it, the word blessed mean? What does it mean to be blessed or blessed? Uh, you know, some uh, translations of the Bible have translated the word here as happy. The Good News Bible, for example, does that. And uh, certainly being happy is part of, can be part of being blessed. Uh, being happy can be the result of being blessed. But it's, there's a lot of things in life that make us happy. Uh, ice cream makes me very happy. But I, just, I don't think, you know, Jesus is using a more profound word here than that because it's not describing merely an emotion. It's describing a state of being. Uh, it's saying that this is the person whom God approves. Uh, this is the person whom God esteems. And if that's the kind of the person whom God esteems, then guess what? It's the kind of person who we ought to want to be. That's what it means to be blessed. So, 
In uh, chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus saw the crowds that had gathered and were following him, he went up onto a mountainside with his disciples and he began teaching them. Now, each of these uh, beatitudes or blesseds uh, refers to a particular quality in a person and what God does for that person or will do and or will do for that person. Now, let me say at the start that uh, Jesus is not teaching here some kind of a salvation by merit. It's not like, for example, if you would look down in verse 9, which talks about um, blessed are the peacemakers, uh, for they will inherit the... they'll be called sons of God. It's not as if, if I go around making peace with people, then somehow that makes me uh, worthy to become a child of God as if I can make myself good enough for God. Uh, I mention this because, sadly, that's how some people have actually interpreted the Beatitudes. But, in fact, the very first Beatitude scuttles that whole idea of us somehow being able to be worthy in God's sight. Let me read it for you, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Has it got anything to do with finance? You know what? Uh, no, it doesn't, but originally that's where the idea comes from. Because in the Old Testament, and it's true of life uh, for us as well, but we see it in the Old Testament that the, the person who is poor, um, who's, who's lacking money, uh, would have no one, no one else to turn to for help but to God alone. And over, the, over, the over time, this uh, image was used in a spiritual sense so that to be poor in spirit means to acknowledge uh, our poverty within, to acknowledge our, our sin, uh, to confess before God that spiritually that we are bankrupt. We cannot save ourselves. All we can do is look to the salvation of God. Now, there's a story in Luke's Gospel that um, comes to mind in that regard. And uh, Remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who one day went to the... Both of them were in the temple praying one day. Um, materially, the tax collector, he was wealthy. He would have had a very fat wallet. He would have been rolling in it. But he was also bankrupt. Spiritually bankrupt. He was so conscious of his sin that he was a beggar. That he came to God begging for mercy. Which was unlike the Pharisee. Who with all of his religion thought that he was actually good enough for God. And he was certainly better than the tax collector. And yet, uh, who did Jesus say went home from the temple in a right relationship with God? It wasn't the Pharisee, was it? With all of his religious credentials, with all of his religious uh, <clears throat> uh, piety, uh, it was actually the beggar, the one who had declared spiritual bankruptcy, the one who was poor in spirit, the tax collector, 
Now, does our world esteem people who acknowledge their sin? Well, our world has a tendency to tell people not to be troubled by guilty conscience. Uh, so long as what they've done isn't a crime, so long as what they've done conforms to the uh, relative morality of our day, um, then they ought not to be thinking that they're sinful. In fact, I've had people come to me that have been overburdened by what they've done in their lives and they've been to counsellors who've told them that it's all okay. They've done nothing wrong. They shouldn't feel bad about themselves. And I've been able to say, no, you have done wrong and uh, you are guilty and let me tell you about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, in our society, we tend to admire people who uh, say that they've got no regrets. The person who gets to the end of their career, the entertainer or the sports person or whatever, and they're interviewed and they say, have you, have you, do you have any regrets? And they go, no, no, no. I do it all again the same way. <laughs> no regrets. And we admire that. We say as if that is somehow strong. And yet, the person who is poor in spirit is actually the person who's uh, taking the first step towards getting right with God, becoming a Christian. But merely acknowledging our sin is not enough. So we move to uh, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. A very popular verse, I might add, with funeral directors. But that's to take it out of context, because the person who mourns here is the person who mourns over sin. You see, if I admit that I'm a sinner, if I confess my sins, well, that's one thing. But like the tax collector in the temple, that knowledge of my sin actually ought to affect my heart. Um, Jesus wept over sin. Luke chapter 19, as he was looking down on the city of Jerusalem, he wept over Jerusalem's uh, rebellion against God and the judgment which would come. I wonder, do we mourn over the sin in our society? Uh, when we uh, think about our, our culture and our society and the rejection of God, uh, the consequence that's having in terms of what is considered to be morally acceptable and how people are living their lives and the destruction, do we mourn over that? It may not necessarily cause us to shed a tear, but does it cause us to fall on our knees and to be praying for our nation, praying for our culture, praying for our society? Do we mourn over our own sin? Like Paul in Romans 7, who was able to say that wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do we mourn? Well, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Now, what does that mean? What's the comfort that we receive? I mean, we all enjoy our creature comforts and we enjoy it when someone comforts us when we're sad. But what is the only thing which can comfort us in our grief over sin? What is the one thing that can lift the burden of the sin, of our sin from our lives? It's to be forgiven. It's the forgiveness of God through Jesus. 
And yet far from mourning over sin, our world is entertained by sin. Think about the uh, reality TV shows. You know, people, <clears throat> you, know, you know, locked up in a house together or <clears throat> on an island together and uh, we see the bickering, they see the betrayal, they see the humiliation that goes on and week after week and millions of people tune in to watch. Haven't got anything better to do than be entertained by sin. And think about the sin in our society, the, how we celebrate uh, various sporting activities which are dominated by gambling and the destruction that that creates on people's lives as, people, as the industry plays with people's greed and their fantasies of a better life. And the celebration of sexual sin which is so rife in our culture a society does not mourn over sin, our society celebrates sin. But I want to say to you, if you are someone who feels at odds with society in that regard, if you are someone who mourns, who grieves over sin, then according to Jesus, you're actually the person who's got it all together. <laughs> you've, if you've turned to Jesus, you're forgiven by God. And you yearn for heaven. You yearn for that uh, reality where there will be no more sin, where righteousness rules supreme, and where God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing what God has done for us and what God will do for us if we've put our trust in Christ. And it kind of changes uh, what we think of ourselves because it's okay not to be proud. It's okay to be humble. Uh, it's okay to have your sin exposed because there is grace and mercy and forgiveness which, which is very healing to, for, 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 for you as a person and gives you a an eternal future with your creator. It changes the way we think about ourselves and therefore it changes the way we ought to be thinking about and treating other people. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, the, the, what is the meek person? Well, the meek person is the one who is, is gentle. Some translations translate it as the person who is gentle in spirit. Uh, they are gentle, they are considerate, they, are, they seek to understand the other person. They put the interests of the other person ahead of their... They're not judgmental and critical, but they actually care for others. They've got compassion. Not because they're weak. Not because they're people who just sort of roll over and give in to everything. No. In fact, it often takes great strength. It takes real strength to be meek. Jesus is meek. And Jesus had the power, he had the capacity to call down a legion of, uh, <clears throat> of angels uh, to bring him down from the cross. That's how powerful and how strong he is. Imagine the fibre that it took to resist that temptation and instead choose to suffer and to die for us. Godless people may boast 
and throw their weight around in order to achieve their dreams in this world. But who, according to Jesus, will inherit the new earth? It's us. It's the meek. Now, notice that, uh, let's just take a step back from these Beatitudes for a moment. Notice that in the Beatitudes, that uh, Jesus is not describing eight different types of people. He's not doing that, is he? It's not not as if there's the the poor in spirit group, and there's the hungering and thirsting after righteousness group, and then there's the, the meek group, and... Some of them are going to inherit the kingdom of heaven and others are going to be comforted and others are going to inherit the earth. No, it's actually the same people. And the outcomes are all just different facets uh, of what it means to have Christ and uh, what Christ has done for us and will do uh, for our futures. Uh, Friends, as you look through the Beatitudes, this is not just a random collection of thoughts of types of people that Jesus is referring to here, Jesus is actually describing the progression in the Christian life uh, from being conscious of sin to grieving over sin to then treating others as God has treated us, being merciful for sin and it doesn't stop there. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's not enough to mourn over past sin. Uh, we've got to be hungry. We've got to be thirsty for, uh, for future righteousness, for uh, growing as Christians, for becoming more the people that God would have, for, for casting aside the sin over which we supposedly mourn, putting off the old self, dying to the old self and being clothed with Christ and growing in righteousness. Now, I was trying to think of an illustration of this kind of yearning, um, this hungering for something into the future. And um, this is what I thought of. Have you ever noticed that if you ask a child their age, that they always answer in half years? Have you noticed that? It's weird, isn't it? You might ask a little boy, how old are you? To which comes the reply, I'm five and a half. (laughs) That is, I'm not content just with being five. I'm moving forward. I'm heading towards six. I'm on a journey here and it's progressing. And you know what he would refer to you as? A grown-up. He's saying, you've actually arrived and that's the destination to which I'm heading. (laughs) So they're always on the move. They're always there hungry to grow. And our hunger is to keep getting to know God better. Our hunger is to be men and women and boys and girls who, uh, who know that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That we want to read and study and meditate and digest the word of God and 
in fellowship with other people to be thinking through how this can actually, how this should be changing my life. You hungry for that? Well, if you're hungry for that, here's the other thing. Don't expect to find satisfaction in this life. Because that being satisfied and being hungry, they're contradictory things, aren't they? The, the world vainly looks for satisfaction in the here and the now. But if we're hungry for righteousness, then we keep on moving forward until the day of the Lord. When There's this wonderful picture in uh, Revelation chapter 7, uh, which uh, talks about the day uh, in heaven when we will hunger and thirst no more. Because Christ Jesus uh, sits on the throne, God reigns supreme, uh, there is no more sin and righteousness uh, fills the temple of God. We will be satisfied. We will be satisfied. How's your appetite for righteousness going? You still hungry? We've got to avoid the uh, situation where in the Christian life we get to a point where we think we've kind of arrived and that uh, we don't actually need to be you know, struggling anymore to move forward. Um, and we don't want to be the people who are just always harking back to the past about you know, the great things that you know, God was doing in our life in the past. Um, but now we've kind of stalled or we're just satisfied, comfortable where we are. We're going to be like the child. I'm, I'm not five, I'm five and a half. I'm heading towards six. We're going to be moving forward. Uh, in the Christian life. So if you're still hungry, then in verse 7, we will be merciful towards others. And we'll be merciful towards others because we know that God in Christ has been merciful towards us. Which means in verse 8 that we will be pure in heart. What does that mean? Well, as I mentioned earlier, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, strips away our hypocrisy. He strips away our performance righteousness. You know, the kind of when we're putting on a show um, in order to impress our Christian friends. Um, and Jesus gets into that in terms of uh, uh, people putting on a show with the money that they give, um, people putting on a show in terms of their public prayers and stuff like that. Jesus strips all of that away, he exposes our hearts and he lays bare our need for forgiveness. And that's actually great. It's what we need because then the healing comes um, through the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, his death on the cross. And it means that we can stop the pretense. We don't have to pretend to God we don't have to pretend to one another. We can be utterly sincere about our sin without the fear of God's condemnation. There is no more fear. And that means we admit fault to God when necessary. It affects our relationships with others because we, can, we don't have to be proud. We can actually admit guilt in terms of what we might have done to other people. And we can seek their forgiveness. Which leads very naturally to verse 9. Let me read that. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they will be called sons of God. Now, what is it that causes fights and quarrels amongst us? Well, in James chapter 4, it's the, the desires that battle within us. Uh, it's our impure hearts that are full of selfishness. Uh, in a nutshell, it's our unfulfilled desires for the things of this world. That's what causes fights and quarrels amongst us. But are we living for this world? No. We are now at peace with God. And so therefore we ought to be people who are aiming to live at peace with other people, with one another, with our society, with our neighbours, even when it's costly to do so, even when we need to actually set aside our own rights so as to maintain peace with another person. That's not weakness. That's strength when you actually say, I'm not going to fight a particular battle because what's more important here is peaceful relationships. But I want to add that peace uh, does not mean appeasement. Um, Sometimes, as Christians, we need to actually uh, be provocative. Sometimes we need to um, confront um, sinful behaviour. in our society, as we care for our society and even in the church, uh, we may need to stand against certain things. We might need to stand against uh, false teaching or we might need to stand against divisiveness or stand against uh, sexual immorality or greed and speak up and that's painful. But in doing so, we are actually peacemakers in the sense that we're bringing about the righteous peace which God desires. Now, ultimately, of course, our peacemaking involves evangelism, sharing the gospel. And it means we need to help non-Christians to understand sin, to understand their sin, to understand that God is not pleased to understand the judgment of God and most importantly to understand the mercy which can only be found through faith in Jesus and repentance. Now friends, uh, in these verses Jesus um, presents a view of life which is radically different to what our world holds to be very dear. I mean mourning over sin and hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness and living that out, it's kind of not where the non-Christian society is at. It's very appealing to some people who actually uh, God will draw to himself, but it really offends the pride of others because it's saying that, uh, that what I'm living for, God says, is not worth living for. It's saying that I can't actually... Um, that I actually need a saviour and that cuts at the pride of the human heart. And so we see in verse 10, if you take a look at that, blessed, that this has implications for our relationships. In verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, there's a number of things I want to point out about these verses. Number one, uh, you notice that Jesus, this is the issue of persecution. This is the one that Jesus has expanded on, isn't it? It's uh, th- what is it, three verses on persecution. Uh, number two, there's a reason why he expands, and that is because uh, it actually gets personal. See, every other beatitude is blessed are those, and now it's blessed are you. Why is that? Well, because this is what's going to happen to the very people that he's speaking to. They'll be persecuted. Notice also why they'll be persecuted. It's not because, um, you know, sometimes we've got to be careful that we don't uh, misunderstand people's reaction to us sometimes. You know, there's, there's ways to share the gospel and there's ways to share the gospel. If we share the gospel by shoving it down people's throat or if we want to... Uh, um, act righteously in a way that's really quite sort of holier than thou, then people's reactions, negative reactions, may not be persecution. Uh, it might be because we're just obnoxious. And we say, oh, I've been persecuted. You know? But no, no, it's, it's persecution here because of actual righteousness, not self-righteousness. And it's be- persecution, Jesus says, because of me because of who he is and what he has done. It's because of the message that we carry and the lives that we live. Uh, we, we don't deliberately set out to expose the sin of the world, it's just that that's what happens. And it exposes the vanity of living without God. Notice also the, the, the blessing or the the outcome in verse 10 uh, for those who are persecuted Jesus says that they're blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven now we've heard that before haven't we right up in verse 3 the very first blessing the poor in spirit the blessing for them is theirs is the kingdom of heaven and so it's actually like two ends of a bookshelf isn't it uh, and it's, this is encompassing the Christian life. Uh, it starts with us admitting our sin and it finishes us with us actually being persecuted because uh, we're righteous people and we love, we love God with all of our heart. In our culture, uh, it's not... I don't think, I'm, you might, I might be wrong here, you can correct me, I don't think it's a normal part of um, the vocabulary of our culture to talk about people being blessed. Uh, I mean, I know that, you know, non-Christians just use the word, but I think it's mostly a Christian thing. Would that be right, do you think? I think so. I might be wrong on that. I think we tend to, um, in, 
in our culture, we tend to talk about, we use different terms. We, like we, we tend to talk about, you know, someone who's really got it made. You know, they've arrived. <laughs> um, the, the people who possess or the people who've achieved, uh, the kind of things that we're supposed to admire. Um, our media and the commercialization of our culture keeps on telling us who these people are. They're the rich, the, the powerful and the, and the famous. I saw a headline in a newspaper the other day about some teenager who's a multi-millionaire and reckons if you're not a millionaire within 10 years of work, there's something wrong with you or something like that. You see that? I didn't bother reading the article, but, you know, there's a guy that's made it. <laughs> there's a guy that made it, you know, t- teenage millionaire, you know. Uh, it's the rich, it's the powerful, it's the famous... That theirs is the good life. That that's what we should be admiring. That's what we should be aspiring towards. Or at the more basic level, for normal people, it's, I think it's the, the, the person who has achieved what they want in their relationships, their significant other relationship, whatever that might involve for them, so long as they're happy. And along with that, a degree of material comfort and uh, financial security. Um, Now, these things, some of these things might be good things in themselves. But is that the blessed life? Is that what life is all about? Jesus says, Blessed are those who have declared spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are those who are possessed by an abhorrence of sin, especially their own sin. Blessed are those who have a guarantee and a genuine desire for the next world because they've put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who've got a passion to serve and obey God passion to keep moving forward, a passion to keep changing, for they know the inheritance that is guaranteed for them. That needs to be us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, amazing teaching of Jesus. And we, we just want to pray for ourselves. We pray, Father God, that by your word and spirit, that we'd be so convicted of our sin, that we would be people who admit it, who would mourn, mourn over it, uh, and who don't want it in our lives any longer. Uh, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who um, is, uh, though uh, our, our sin is like an, now like an open sore, that he has... He is the balm of Calvary, that he, uh, that he is the one who heals uh, our greatest need, and that is for forgiveness of sin. And we pray, Lord God, that um, in this life, that we would keep on pressing on, uh, seeking to serve you, uh, knowing that that puts it as, us at odds with our society, but doing so uh, lovingly and graciously in the prayer that others uh, would find uh, the salvation that we've found. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.